from the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hi, this is Vanessa Williams from The Washington Post. I'm hey, it's Philip Rucker at The Washington Post. Do you have a minute? Hi, this is Dan Zak. From- this is Post Reports. I'm Alexis Diao. It's Thursday, June 3rd. Today, the deal to replace Netanyahu, what we know about booster shots, and the intergenerational appeal of Olivia Rodrigo. On Wednesday, after four elections in two years and uh, negotiations between politicians that went to almost the last minute uh, before midnight on Wednesday, a group of opposition parties announced that they have come to a power-sharing deal that would replace Benjamin Netanyahu as the Prime Minister of Israel for the first time in 12 years. Steve Hendricks is the Jerusalem bureau chief for The Post. It was a remarkable few minutes here. Yair Lapid, who's the opposition leader of the parliament and the man orchestrating the new coalition, called Israeli President Reuven Rivlin. They got him in a soccer game, as a matter of fact, about 38 minutes before the deadline for this whole political process was about to expire. And they told them that they had reached an agreement, they had the votes, and they were ready for a formal Knesset vote on their new anti-Netanyahu coalition. Steve, can you remind us who is Netanyahu politically and his reputation? Benjamin Netanyahu has been the prime minister of Israel for the last 12 years and actually had a brief stint in the top job before that. But that really doesn't quite describe the colossal role that he has played in Israeli politics in the last decade and a bit. He has really dominated and changed the political culture of this country in a way that probably no other Israeli leader has. And most recently, in the last two years or so, over the course of four elections that didn't produce any conclusive result, he has really battled to stay in power in a way that has been remarkable to see and disturbing for even some of his allies who worry that his efforts to keep the job have begun to damage Israeli institutions. And it has really set up a crisis in political culture here that is kind of coming to a head right now, I have to say. And the question of whether Netanyahu would continue to be prime minister, this has been up in the air for a while. Can you give us a little context to that? Israel's current political crisis really started at the end of 2018 as the investigation against Netanyahu on allegations of bribery and fraud and breach of trust really began to pick up steam. Since then, they've had now four elections, and in each case, Netanyahu has found a way to stay in power despite never winning an outright majority for his coalition in the parliament. It hasn't been very pretty. It's been a very rough and tumble period in Israeli politics. In fact, their government processes are largely stalemated. They haven't had a proper budget passed in more than two years. After the last election in March of this year, he once again tried to assemble a majority coalition and failed. And this time it 
the chance to form a government passed to to somebody else. And we now may be seeing the beginnings of the process that will end his tenure. Steve, tell me about this coalition of lawmakers who are opposing Netanyahu. Well, this is not a group of parties or lawmakers that you would ever assume would choose to serve together in a government for Israel. It spans the very fractious Israeli political spectrum from some of the most conservative uh, right-wing parties to the most liberal left-wing parties who really haven't had much political influence in Israel in quite a number of years. And also in that mix is the first Arab party to officially support an Israeli governing coalition in quite this way, something that used to be really a taboo among Jewish politicians in Israel. But what they do have in common is the desire to end, frankly, the long-running 12-year rule of Benjamin Netanyahu. That has been the unifying glue that has brought these very, very ideologically different politicians into the same group. Has Netanyahu responded to this attempted ouster? What we've heard from him today was pretty much what we've heard from him for the last several weeks or even months when he addressed the possibility that anything like this coalition would would take shape and replace him, that it's a very dangerous group of politicians, that it opens the door to the return of the left wing of Israeli politics, which has largely been sidelined, and that it's dangerous for Israel's security, implying that this group of politicians will not be as good as he has been, in, in his, <laughs> certainly in his view, of handling Israel's very, very delicate and very dangerous posture here in the Middle East and adjacent to the Gaza Strip where, you know, as we've seen in recent weeks, violence can erupt at any time. So tell me a little bit more about what would come next, assuming that this coalition would go through. Who would the new prime minister be and for how long? The terms of the new coalition are known in their general shape. Some of the particulars are yet to be worked out or yet to be made public. Neftali Bennett, a former ally of Benjamin Netanyahu, a former defense minister, would go first in a prime minister rotation. He would serve for two years under the agreement. And if this kind of fragile coalition survives, centrist opposition leader Yair Lapid would then take his turn in the top job and serve the next two years as prime minister. A lot has to happen before those guys are actually sworn into office. By law, the legislature, the the Knesset, Israel's parliament, is obliged to vote on this coalition deal that was officially announced last night. But you can um, believe that Benjamin Netanyahu and his allies are going to take every minute of that period and try and derail this agreement, peel off some of the supporters, uh, anything they can think of, uh, protests, to stop what seems to be happening right now. It's the first step on a very long road. What has the reaction been like from Israelis? Well, it's been mixed. The protest in front of the hotel where these negotiations went down to the last minute on Wednesday were quite intense on both sides. The Knesset security forces have increased their 
bodyguard contingents among some of the principals. And publicly, the pressure campaign is quite remarkable. There are conservative rabbis in Israel who are aligned with the government of Netanyahu who, who are saying what you are doing, addressing these, these right-wing politicians who are a part of this coalition, is a sin. You know, you're betraying Judaism, you're betraying the Jewish nature of Israel. I, I mean, it's very hard to overstate the pitch of the rhetoric that these people are going to be under. But there's also a kind of remarkable sense of near euphoria among many people here that this period of dominance by Benjamin Netanyahu may finally be coming to an end. What could this mean for Palestinians? Of course, there's a delicate ceasefire that was just brokered over Gaza. What could this mean for them? At this moment, following the 12 days of aerial bombardment between Hamas and Israel, a very emotionally raw moment for Palestinians in in Israel, in the West Bank, and in Gaza. On a practical level, I don't think that this new government were to be sworn in will change much about either the uh, immediate ceasefire or the approach of Israel in the longer term to relations with Palestinians in in Gaza or the West Bank. The consensus, in, in my view, among political observers here is that this coalition is really hamstrung in taking on those big issues, in affecting much change in issues of negotiations with the Palestinians or, for example, with the settlements, expansion of the settlements or restrictions on the settlements. On the other hand, last night was remarkable for another reason. It marked the first time, the first significant time that an Arab-Israeli party, a party of Palestinians who live in Israel, signed on to a coalition government. Usually, Arab parties kind of sit that out. They don't participate quite at that level. This time, through quite a remarkable series of events uh, through the campaign and through the negotiations after the election, one Arab party is a signatory to the new coalition. And it's not just an Arab party, it's actually a relatively fundamentalist Islamist party. That's a remarkable achievement and it's very heartening to both Jewish Israelis and Arab Israelis who would like to see more participation, who think that's uh, possibly a path to better integration, better relations, and also on a more practical level for more government support for Arab communities who do feel in many cases like second-class citizens in Israel. Where do the Arab-Israeli faction of this coalition, where do they fall on Palestinian independence? And what's the likelihood that they would actually change anything for the Palestinian people or anything to ease the Israeli-Palestinian conflict? The Arab-Israeli party that has decided to participate in this coalition, it's called the Ram Party. And the leader of it, Mansour Abbas, has really played both sides of the Israeli split here. He actually has negotiated with Netanyahu and with this change coalition. And in both cases, what he said is what he wants to do is improve government services to Israel's Arab citizens. And that means largely 
matters of crime. There's a real crime problem in Israeli uh, Arab communities and significantly construction permits. The right to build a home is a hugely controversial issue here. And a lot of Arab communities, they suffer from enforcement of very strict building codes that uh, they would say are not applied equally in Jewish communities. So Abbas has said, what I want is a government that will be kindlier and more generous towards Arab communities. And I really don't care that much whether it's Benjamin Netanyahu or Naftali Bennett, uh, right or left or centrist. It's a very pragmatic game and not all uh, Palestinians living in Israel support him, but it has succeeded in putting him very much at the center of uh, this moment of uh, Israeli politics in a way that really no Arab party in Israel has ever been before. So it sounds like Israel is facing this potential, you know, monumental political shift. But when it comes to Palestinians, it is more of the same. I think that's right. The change might come in the way that Palestinians who live in Israel interact with their government, feel represented by their government. But in terms of the the conflict with Palestinians overall in the West Bank and in Gaza, I think it's more likely that nothing will change, that there will actually be sort of a restriction on addressing those issues by this very complex and conflicted government. The next likely prime minister of Israel is Naftali Bennett, who is very much aligned with a hard-line, pro-settler faction of Israeli politics. And, and in many, many ways, he is more conservative in that way than Benjamin Netanyahu is. He has said some very, very hard-line things about his absolute opposition to an independent Palestinian state. Um, in that way, I don't think Palestinians are very encouraged by the change. Netanyahu has made comebacks before. This was not his first time serving as prime minister. Is he done for good politically this time? I think it would be very foolish to count Benjamin Netanyahu out, either as we try to see if this potential coalition can receive parliamentary approval in the next 10 or 12 days. I think there's a lot of points at which Netanyahu's pressure campaign could actually have effect. Or even beyond that, if he were to be relegated to the opposition for the first time in 12 years, that his political career is over. Netanyahu has tremendous, very deep and very passionate support among roughly half of the Israeli people. He is on trial for corruption, but in Israel, the judicial process is years long, and it'll be quite some time before there's any resolution of the charges against him. If I can say anything about this moment, it's, uh, it's a remarkable potential change in Israeli politics, but I don't think anybody is counting on real change until the vote for this government uh, happens. And even after that, uh, Netanyahu is going to be a force. Steve Hendricks is the Jerusalem bureau chief for The Post. The story was produced by Emma Talkoff. So, Carolyn, I am vaccinated. 
which is nice. And I have to say, it just, it feels a little bit like after more than a year in this pandemic, I've got this magical armor that's kind of around me at all times. But I have this nagging anxiety that like at any moment, this armor is just going to disappear and I'm not going to know it. And I'm going to be left vulnerable to get the coronavirus. Is that going to happen? The immunity that you get from vaccination does decrease over time. That's Carolyn Johnson. She's a science reporter for The Post. What we don't know is how fast it decreases, when it gets to a level that is worrisome, or even kind of how it will happen. But one thing we generally know about immunity is that it's not like an on and off switch. It's not like one day you're fine and one day you're not fine. But there is still just so much unknown about this that we're preparing for all kinds of scenarios, basically based on making inferences about what could happen. So you're not going to lose your immunity one day, like (laughs) a magical, like (laughs) bursting bubble that goes away. But you are, your immunity will probably decrease over time. We just don't know how quickly. So is part of keeping that immunity going, are people going to need booster shots? Yeah, this question is frequently asked and we don't exactly know the answer, but probably. And I think one of the things that people get kind of confused about is that they think we're going to need a booster shot for sure in the fall, which is what some people have speculated. That's definitely one possibility, but there are other like boosters we get every every year, every couple years, you know, we're not really sure what the interval could be. And I know that creates a lot of uncertainty because people get nervous when they know scientists don't know the answer. But I would say there's so much energy being put to answer this question that it's one of the things about COVID you don't need to personally worry about. And what do scientists know so far about how boosters could work? Well, what we have seen is some early data from Moderna, which is one of the vaccine makers that has been trying out different kinds of boosts. Because the other question is how we're going to want to boost. Are we going to want a third shot of the same vaccine you got in like February or March? Another possibility is that they could create a new vaccine targeted specifically to a variant, if that was a concern. And that could be the third vaccine or second, if you got a a J&J shot. And what they are doing is testing, do those shots top off your immunity? Basically looking at your antibodies. What happens with your antibodies, as far as we know so far, is that they do decrease over time. There's kind of a fast initial decrease, but then it plateaus. And we're not sure how long that plateau lasts. We also don't know, you know, in six months, is there going to be a different kind of variant that's more concerning for a vaccine? So given all that, They're testing basically every scenario. So most or all of the vaccine companies have both variant-specific strains that they're testing. Most are also testing just an additional shot of the original vaccine. And they're just looking in those tests to see, do these send your antibodies sky high again so that you would be protected? And what other information will scientists need to gather to be able to figure out the timing and dosage of a booster? There are three main things that they're going to be looking for, and one of them is 
to first of all figure out if we can define what is the threshold of immunity. Basically, it would be a way to measure in your blood whether you're immune or not. This would be a really helpful for a number of reasons, but in this case, it would help you understand, okay, if your antibodies get below X level, that's a time that we have to worry. Understanding if we can kind of come up with a, a hallmark in your blood of immunity would be super helpful, number one. Next, they will have to determine how long it takes people to reach that on average, and they would do that by looking at the clinical trials which have been monitoring people since they were first uh, vaccinated starting last summer, or in some cases, actually even earlier. And then tracking the levels of different kind of immune components in their blood and seeing how long it takes them to get to that kind of worrisome level. Those are kind of two steps that are ongoing right now. The science is ongoing and like we should soon have at least some answers to those questions. The third thing they have to do is figure out when we do need a boost, how do we best give the boost? Uh, that will be questions about whether combinations work, whether you should still get the same shot you got the first time around, and all these kind of practical things, which are a lot of the questions I get from readers. They wonder, can I get Moderna if I had Pfizer, blah, blah, blah. And uh, you know, the answer is we just don't know yet. There's no reason right now to think you wouldn't be able to, but that's why we have to do the science to get the answers. Where are we currently with testing these boosters and what else is on the horizon that you're looking for? Another thing that we're going to have to monitor really closely is just real world data. And that's from the real world use of the vaccines. So we're going to have really good laboratory data from clinical trials. We're going to have all these, we'll hopefully have kind of a threshold of immunity that we can measure. But another sign will come from just country level data of the use of these vaccines. If they start to see in countries that are well vaccinated, a lot of breakthrough infections, infections that break through the immunity from vaccines, that'll be a real cause for concern. So that's why they're tracking breakthrough infections really closely. And it's particularly of concern for severe cases, for hospitalizations, for deaths. And so that's what we're really going to, to see. And that kind of leads into some of the other kind of wild cards out there, one of them being the variants. What we've seen is that although the current vaccines remain effective against the variants, the variants can be more challenging. If a variant emerges that's better able to get around the vaccines and we have a situation where we have gradually decreasing level of immunity, it's like a whole stew of different factors that are going to have to interplay together and we're going to have to figure out. And, you know, there are also good scenarios where perhaps we don't need to boost very soon or maybe at all. And we just don't know. But, you know, if the variants turn out to be less tricky than some people fear, that could mean that the level of vaccination we have now could give us kind of a long sense of protection. So we're doing all of this work, all of the science, and we're preparing for scenarios that could involve such a range of future possibilities. It's almost hard to comprehend all of them. But we're doing that work now and we're preparing for that now. It doesn't mean we need the boosters now, but it means we'll be ready if we need them soon. Carolyn Johnson is a science reporter for The Post. This story was produced by Renny Svernovsky. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. 
The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Class is in session. Find Try This from The Washington Post wherever you listen. And now, one more thing from producer Jordan Marie Smith about why we're so sweet on Sour, the new album at the top of the Billboard charts. For people who don't know, can you tell us who Olivia Rodrigo is? I think it depends on your age, actually, how much you know about her. That's Sonia Rao. She covers pop culture for The Post. I think people um, who would have been watching Disney Channel maybe like five years ago or so would have known her from there. She was on this show called Bizarre Vark. More recently, though, was on this show on Disney Plus and still is called High School Musical, the musical, the series. What are you doing here? If you really cared about me, you'd let somebody who wants to play this part play it. Now, of course, she's most known for her musical career. She's put out her solo album, Sour, and it just, it was huge. I mean, I think people kind of got a taste of that with Driver's License, the first single, came out in January. I got my driver's license last week, just like we always talked about. Because you were so excited for me to finally drive up to your just it became huge it beat records i think it was beating spotify streaming records too in addition to actual industry records and so people were like oh okay so this disney star you know puts out music that maybe will appeal to people beyond you know the kids who are watching her on disney you said forever now i drive alone past your street so sonia i'm a millennial And I'm wondering why it's so possible that not only 18-year-olds like Olivia are really into her music, but people who are definitively older than 18 like her music. There's a lot of millennials who um, I know personally who are listening to Olivia Rodrigo. I think her song Good For You earned a ton of comparisons to Misery Business by Paramore. Which is, you know, that same kind of like post-breakup, I'm mad, I'm screaming, this is a fun song type of vibe. You know, I've even seen comparisons to Alanis Morissette if we want to go up a generation. So, you know, I think the thing that's really interesting about her, she's 18, and you look at these lyrics that she did work with the co-writer and producer on some of them, but they're really honest. And I think, you know, the comparison that a lot of people have been drawing, rightfully so in my mind, uh, is to Taylor Swift, who's a huge idol of hers. And you look back at Taylor's early work and that's stuff that people were listening to who weren't, you know, 15. People were listening to the song 15 who were older than that. And I think there's something really special about their songwriting within the pop sphere, especially. They do speak to universal truths in a way that pop music, you know, is kind of designed to do. A lot of songs in the genre are meant to kind of, you know, just be for everyone. Everyone can connect to this. So Sour, Olivia's debut album, does have some explicit tracks on it. And I find that especially interesting because 
she's a Disney star. And I feel like Disney stars are supposed to be these lily white, very clean artists. You know, 10, 15 years ago, Disney stars who were putting out music were expected to be like perfect role models and cursing did not always fit with that. So I think that is one thing that's really notable. Um, It could be, you know, also because she's signed to Interscope Records. She's not signed to like a Disney label per se. Um, So her music is separate from her acting career in that sense. But yeah, I think, you know, she's definitely Gen Z. I think she has this public persona that really fits with social media. And I think that's different than, you know, turning on the Disney Channel and having that be your only interaction with Olivia Rodrigo. Like kids can now look at Instagram and they get to know who she is as a person to the extent that she wants them uh, to get to know her. I think she's been able to kind of put herself out there a little bit more than Disney stars of the past. I mean, we are all pretty familiar, I would say, at this point with like the growing pains. Miley Cyrus, you know, she was Hannah Montana, but she also wanted to put out music as Miley Cyrus, you know, not as this teen character in a wig. And I think it was really hard for her to do that because at the time she was doing that, you know, she was still on Disney and Disney had, you know, a heavy hand in kind of crafting her image. And so I really do think that social media has allowed Olivia to become, you know, who she is today in the public eye. Sonia Rao is a pop culture reporter for The Post. This story was produced by Jordan Marie Smith. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show is mixed by Renny Svarnovsky. We are still looking to answer your questions about how to handle the aftertimes now that more people in the U.S. are being vaccinated. Are you nervous about dating or maybe going back to work in person? Our advice columnist Carolyn Hacks will be answering your questions. Send them in a voice memo to postreports at washpost.com. I'm Alexis Diao. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, The Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Glasses in session. Find Try This from The Washington Post wherever you listen.